Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Old age is a gift that is not granted to many. We take for granted the years as they pass by and it's easy to discount the wisdom that comes with the experience of life. In today's episode, the experience and wisdom that came with old age wasn't the only thing that was discredited, but in fact, their value of their very life seemed to be in question. This is the case of the Alpine Manor murders, a place where seniors could go for assisted living and end-of-life care, instead turned into a murderous tale. My name's Ben. And I'm Nicole, and you're listening to Wicked and Grim. A true crime podcast. Warning, the following podcast contains graphic content and material intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. gave me quite the face with that uh, intro the, i also didn't get the memo to open my drink i just went with it for the intro i'm sorry okay well i'm opening mine now um because i was like oh this sounds like a really nice podcast i was like because <clears throat> i actually say that often that um like aging is a gift basically right oh yeah definitely it's not granted to everyone and so I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm really digging this. And then <laughs> <laughs> it went real south. Reality struck. Yeah, real south, real quick. Well, wait till we actually get into the episode because it's, um, it's dark, it sucks, and yay. Not awesome. yay, not yay whatsoever. Awesome. Um, but uh, we do have a couple things we want to touch on here before we get into the episode. Uh, particularly... Last week, we said we were going to be airing that as the first video episode ever. However, we did have a problem with one camera. I think we even talked about it. Um, that one it of the shut cameras off. shut off. Yeah. Um, we lost half the footage for Nicole's angle. So you would have been just looking at me Which for half of it. Which would have been fine. Yeah, I don't know. I think for the first episode, we want to make sure that every camera is working. So I think we got it all sorted out. We have all the cameras set up and it should be good to go this time. So fingers crossed, fingers crossed YouTube link down below uh, where you can find the episode in video form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, We also want to thank our patrons because they're signing up. They're supporting us, getting the behind the scenes and getting an extra episode, which airs the last day of the month, which is also tomorrow Mm -hmm. or today, whenever you're listening to it, or maybe yesterday or who knows when, right? Right. All depends. January 31st. There you go. (laughs) Um, But we have uh, these people to thank for signing up for Patreon. So we have Chantel Berriou, Tamara Newcomb, Nicole Mary, Gabriel Hill, and Monica Keys. Thank you so much, you guys. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. So they get all that good stuff over on Patreon. If you want to find the link, links down below, you can go ahead, check it out, subscribe, or you can just be here and chill with us. That's cool too. I actually know a Nicole Marie. You do? 
So I'm curious if that's the one that I If know. it's the Nicole Marie? Yeah. Or if it's a Nicole Marie? Yeah. Or I another mean, Nicole Marie? A lot of people have similar or the same names, right? Touche. So. I mean, I've never met another Ben Gibson, but I'm sure there is others out there. There is a Ben. Gibbons. Gibbons. A local Ben Gibbons. In town. Yeah. Yes. And it always, I, I see them comment sometimes and I'm like, like, I'm like, oh. I don't know. It startles me. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. That's, Not you. That's the knockoff version of me. Or maybe I'm the knockoff version of them. I don't know. Oh but either way. Um, and then, yeah, we should also mention that we're putting this out a smidge late. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's not technically late. It's the same day. It's the same day, but it's not like midnight no. of that day. We usually aim to upload the second the day starts, at least um, Pacific Standard Time. At yeah. midnight, the, the episode's released. Um, but we had some power outage issues and stuff like that. Uh, so we're a little bit delayed today yeah well we had quite the storm last night it was a bit alarming (laughs) yeah you could say that again and living in a tiny home what like during a storm is next level you feel much more exposed that's (laughs) for sure it's it has its benefits but it's also kind of weird too at the same time yeah Uh, it's like i don't know in a camper an rv sort of situation you're just like very there in the storm it's like whoa we, we have a tin roof and we live in a little tiny loft where we sleep so we're just like the storm is right there and shit's hitting the roof and it's really loud. <laughs> Shit hits the roof. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, but we are we good to go into this? Ready for the episode? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's dive into the Alpine Manor murders, shall okay. we? Let's do her. Okay. So in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ed Chambers and his wife, Marguerite, uh, were an unbreakable team. Together, they had four children and lived a very successful life with their careers. But their life, however, did take an unexpected turn in 1972 when Ed began to notice a subtle shift in Marguerite's once vibrant personality. The woman who he had known to have been highly intelligent and quick-witted was now showing signs of forgetfulness and confusion. Concerned, the couple sought medical advice, bracing themselves for the news, and they had some that would really reshape their world. See, the diagnosis was devastating. Marguerite, at the age of 42, was grappling with Alzheimer's disease. Oh, wow. Relatively young, for sure. That seems super young. Definitely. It's a relentless form, for those who don't know, of dementia that mercilessly erodes a person's memory and cognitive abilities over time. So eventually you start forgetting um, who you are, your friends and family are, and you don't know where you are. And it's just constant amnesia, essentially. Yeah, I... I don't know if you do, but I don't have any experience with like any loved ones with that, but it just seems like it would, it would just be awful, like just awful for them themselves, but also say if it's like your mom or your dad or whatever, and they, they're slowly like forgetting who you are. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I know for me, like I forget a lot of shit. You tell me like, Hey, we got plans next weekend. I'm like, Oh, gotcha. And then I forget it like in five minutes. Mm-hmm. But other than that, definitely no experience with, uh, Alzheimer's or any sort of dementia. No. Counter lucky stars so far anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the years unfolded, Marguerite was left unable to perform the simplest of daily tasks. Ed made the difficult decision to take an early retirement and determined to be by Marguerite's side through the tumultuous journey that lay ahead. He was there. However, by the early 1980s, the harsh reality set in and Marguerite required around the clock care that extended beyond what Ed could provide. Reluctantly, acknowledging the limitations of his solo efforts, Ed made the decision to enlist the assistance of professional live-in caregivers. In the meantime, he searched for suitable facilities around Grand Rapids. 
Facilities, however, were very a very rare commodity, leaving Marguerite's name among a multitude of people who were on the hopeful applicant waiting list. Mm-hmm. So in that meantime, he had, you know, caregivers coming to to their home doing what they could but he ultimately wanted to get her into a a full-time facility right so they endeared a a long two-year wait but a glimmer of hope finally emerged when a bed opened up at alpine manor just on the outskirts of grand rapids now this 208 bed nursing home conveniently was only three three blocks from where ed and marguerite lived Oh, that seems perfect. Yeah, it became a lifeline, essentially, right? So that Ed could actually even, like, he could walk to go see her at his leisure. Alpine Manor had four wings. Each of its own had its nursing stations. The facility, uh, contrary to Ed's preconceived notions um, of a cold, sterile box, was something much different. It exuded a surprising warmth. The air was tinged with cleanliness, and the staff donned an impeccable attire, and they graced the common areas, mingling within all the residents. As Ed ventured further, he discovered the vibrant community within where the residents gathered, engaging in conversation with playful games. The nursing home, far from the stark institution that he initially assumed, boasted carpeted floors, curtains adorning the windows, walls had artwork, and it was just had this like nice touch of humanity within mm-hmm. this environment. Like it almost sounds kind of cozy. Like I want to go there and like put myself in there almost. <laughs> oh like it's like, goodness. damn, that sounds like a life, you know? Yeah, it sounds comfortable and cozy and And that's warm a, and- exactly what they were aiming for and that's exactly what they were delivering. And that's exactly what Ed was hoping for with Marguerite to have something like this. Um, not only that, though, the residents even had the luxury of a beauty shop being in, in-house. And there was a dedicated dining room where they could share meals. And it was just like there was even craft activities and the opportunity for social studies classes so they can keep up on like current events and everything. Wow. It was fantastic, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, despite the weight of the guilt setting upon Ed's shoulders as they made the dif- difficult transition with Marguerite attending Alpine Manor, the unexpected uh, homely ambience of the facility provided a, a very bittersweet kind of solace to him, right? Yeah. Now, Alpine Manor had actually even earned accolades from Michigan Health Departments as a standout nursing home. It was a perfect fl- solution for both Marguerite and Ed alike. Mm-hmm. So by mid-1980s, Marguerite's deteriorating condition had now confer- confined her to the world where walking and talking were, were distant memories. Oh, man, that's sad. Yeah. She's living within the Alpine um, Manor home, and she's just getting worse and worse as the years goes on. Ed witnessed the heartbreaking transformation as she spent her entire days curled up into a ball, gently rocking back and forth. But undeterred, Ed remained committed. He would visit her every single day. Okay, I feel like he is like husband of the year. Husband of the, yeah, century maybe even, who knows? doing a good job there. Definitely. So in the quiet moments of connection that he had with Marguerite, though, um, they were able to communicate just a little bit. Whenever he reached out his hand towards her and Ed's voice filled the room, he would sit beside her, whatever the case. You could kind of see this like fleeting eye contact apparently where she just kind of got happy again, where she became, even for a moment, the person who she once was. Oh my gosh. That makes me want to cry. Ed, after these visits, would gently tuck Marguerite into bed, leaving her in the care of the dedicated staff on his way out. It was a nightly ritual and they would do this. Every single day. Wow. I mean, you could only be so lucky to have an Ed. I feel yeah. like, Yeah, everyone, everyone should strive to have an Ed. 
<laughs> Basically. Wow. Now, of course, Marguerite was not the only person living within the walls of Alpine Manor. There were many others, both patients and healthcare professionals, like operating within these walls. So this brings us to 23-year-old Kathy Wood. She had harbored dreams of a career in healthcare. Her journey had started with voluntary work as a nursing assistant during high school, where her passion for helping others just blossomed. However, at the age of 17, Kathy's career aspirations took a bit of a detour when she became pregnant. With the responsibilities of motherhood taking precedence, Cassie, Kathy made the decision to put her dreams on hold. As life unfolded, she found herself at a crossroads. Her daughter was now attending school, and she was eager to rekindle the flame for her passion that she once had for nursing. Awesome. So, serendipitously, the nursing home that resided just a few blocks away, Alpine Manor, had openings for jobs. And Kathy wasted no time in seizing the opportunity. Her enthusiasm and genuine commitment to caregiving caught the attention of the management, and she was promptly hired as a nursing aide pretty much on the spot. Awesome. Yeah. Kathy found herself aiding individuals with tasks ranging from minor assistance to dressing to showering to providing comprehensive care for high-needs residents, encompassing daily activities such as eating, drinking, bathing, uh, turning in bed to prevent – like turning the patients in mm. bed to prevent uh, pressure sores. Right, yep. Uh, her diligence and good nature basically quickly made her very likable, not only within the residents, um, but also within the staff that she was working with as well. Okay. Because that's not – I mean, all those things you described, that's not an easy job. No, it's not. So. Anyone who's doing these sort of jobs, it's it's difficult, mm -hmm. not only physically, but I'm sure mentally as well. Absolutely. Uh, and she was. She was a very hard worker. Uh, she was also said to be very intelligent and easy to talk to as well. Uh, she seemingly – like seamlessly just integrated in with the rest of the staff and fit in with like the, the resident community. Uh, it swiftly like earned her as a reputation of a valued member of not only working here, but that tight knit community within, within the walls. Okay. Uh, she was actually able to embrace her night owl tendencies as well. as she gravita gravitated towards the night shift, which were like the quieter hours, which let her have these deeper connections that she could build mm. with residents or, or other co-workers and stuff as the residents are sleeping hmm. she sounds kind of like an angel wow yeah she was she was doing everything she could and she was doing really well and she was thriving which i think is most important and i think if you can use the word thriving in terms of a home like this mm -hmm. i think it's a good thing oh yeah through and through well i mean i volunteered like that at one point thinking that's what i wanted to do <laughs> and then yeah. i was like not for me so I, I think people that choose to do that and, you know, do a good job are just amazing because yeah. it's so necessary. We need them. Props to them. 100%. Now, an un unintended consequence of her, of her genuine nature and infectious personality was the attention she garnered from her peers. Colleagues affectionately followed her, hanging on every word she spoke. It was a stark contrast from what she was actually used to. Um, so throughout her married life, she became very self-conscious with herself. She grappled with her weight, reaching almost 450 pounds after the birth of her daughter. Now, as such, Kathy spent a lot of her life indoors. Yet at Alpine Manor, she found herself immersed in a rather supportive environment where compliments replaced judgment. Uh, the newfound com camaraderie infected, like, Kathy's passion even more. Hmm. So she's like, oh, like, I'm going to this place where I'm people like me people want to talk to me people don't mind maybe my weight or they're what, not judging her. they're not judging whatever she's self-conscious about she doesn't have to be self-conscious anymore hmm. 
That's awesome. So this made her want to go to work and it even actually prompted her to take double shifts willingly because she just liked it there that much. Huh, right on. Yeah. Uh, now in the unfolding months, Cassie's, Kathy's transformation became a bit of a, a concern for her husband, Ken. Days off, which used to be, you know, family time, right? Mm-hmm. Now saw Kathy uh, immersing herself in with socializing with the Alpine Manor staff, which I mean, you get friends at work. Oh totally yeah, get that. totally. Um, but a notable shift began to emerge as Kathy would, who had never really consumed alcohol before, would now return home from these gatherings quite drunk or even high and just kind of like almost in a daze or a stupor sort of thing. Okay. I mean, she went from basically a dedicated stay-at-home wife and mother to now this constantly working individual who then was going out and partying in her spare time and almost not having a family life anymore. Okay. She Hmm. even like displayed little interest in spending any time with her daughter. Okay. Because at first I was like, good for her. Because I mean, just doing it periodically or whatever is more than fine. Oh, yeah. No, enjoy Um, yourself for sure. But yeah, if if it's taking away pretty much all your time from your family. That's not great. This was, was becoming a problem. Okay. Yeah. Tensions escalated at home and they were marked by frequent fights between Kathy and Ken. Uh, Kathy also began sharing with Ken the, the gossip circulating, you know, around the nursing aides at the manor, which that happens. There's gossip Mm -hmm. at work. You talk, I get it. Yeah. Um, she'd tell tales of love triangles, drunken threesomes, altercations between love rivals, And he was just like, people are like fighting, fucking and doing everything else under the sun. Like what kind of toxic environment is this, right? Yeah. I mean, that would probably alarm us us both a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He's basically like, what the hell's going on at Alpine Manor, Yeah. Wow. But I mean, as of right now, like the facility is still operating good. The the residents are getting care and that's the important part. Mm -hmm. As long as it doesn't spill in between that line or cross over, I mean, I think that's important. Yeah. Now, in September of 1986, only six months after Kathy had joined Alpine Manor, she dropped a bombshell on Ken. She had fallen in love with someone else, an 18-year-old fellow nursing aide named Dawn. After seven years of marriage, Kathy wanted a divorce. Okay. At first, 18 was a little alarming, but I guess she would have been a bit young on young Yeah, herself. she was. Yeah, I believe, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, I think she's about 23. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So Ken hope this was just a passing phase and she would return to him but kathy was adamant and so ken decided to take their daughter and the two of them lived in a hotel while kathy remained in their family home now alone she was struggling to make ends meet without ken's financial support and kathy found herself in a bit of a pickle i actually wrote precarious situation but i just really wanted to say pickle <laughs> for some reason in that moment i was like no pickle sounds better it does i i enjoyed that <laughs> I mean, who doesn't enjoy a good pickle once in a while, I know, dang. Yeah, they're good. So the situation she found herself in was a fellow Alpine Manor staff member who was introduced to her through a nursing aide friend was 22-year-old Gwen Graham. Although Gwen lacked prior nursing experience, she had taken on the role uh, as stepping stone towards becoming a paramedic. And Alpine Manor's chronic understaffing led to Gwen being hired on the spot, spot, just like Kathy Mm -hmm. right before her. And an immediate connection sparked between Kathy and Gwen. And within a week of Gwen moving in, because, hey, you know, financial support, right? Okay, So yeah. she moved in to help fill that void. She just gets a little bit of rent. And within a week of her moving in, Kathy severed ties with the 18-year-old Dawn. And the relationship between Kathy and Gwen quickly evolved from roommates to romantic partners. Okay. Yeah. 
So the nursing staff, nursing, nursing, nursing staff at the manor found amusement in the contrasting appearance in the newly formed couple between Kathy and Gwen. Gwen had an athletic build, stood about five foot two inches tall, weighed about 140 pounds, had a bunch of freckles and a red haired mullet. Okay, wow. In contrast, Kathy stood about six feet tall, possessed her larger frame, striking blue eyes and bleached blonde hair. The staff playfully dubbed them the perfect pair, joking that Kathy brought the brains while Gwen contributed the brawn. Oh, my. Yeah. So apparently it was like a yin and a yang sort of situation. Yeah. Complete sort of opposites that attract, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it makes sense. Yeah. Now, beyond their physical appearances, though, the duo found common ground in their troubled upbringings. Kathy's past was marked by a strict and physical abuse with her father. Uh, with her assuming a caregiver role as well for her siblings since her mother just kind of took a back seat. Meanwhile, Gwen had endured the trauma of childhood sexual abuse perpetrated by her own father, leading to self-harm as a coping mechanism during her teenage years. Neither of those situations are good, so no, I, that sucks. Not at all. So both of them carried significant emotional baggage as a result between these and harbored deep like resentment towards their, their now elderly parents. In the workplace for Alpine Manor, um, I mean, it's kind of understandable to expect that it's common to have deaths, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, you ha you're dealing with elderly, palliative mm -hmm. care sort of situation, uh, and they dealt with an average of five to ten residents passing away each month due to age-related conditions. Oh. So shortly after Gwen had joined the staff, she experienced her first encounter with death. An elderly, elderly woman named Helen succumbed to pneumonia, and Gwen initially was devastated. She underwent a sudden transformation, however, after Helen's remains were transferred from the or transferred to the funeral home. Her tears stopped, and they were replaced quickly by a surprising revelation to her co colleagues that she apparently couldn't stand Helen, citing the constant whining as a source of her dislike for her. Okay. So she started by crying, and then as soon as she was gone, she's like, "Oh, I couldn't stand that woman. She's just constantly whining, like ugh." Oh, yeah. that seems terrible. Yeah, not good. Yeah. <laughs> About a month into Gwen's employment, another new nursing aide joined the night shift. She was in the middle of responding to a resident's call because, I mean, they have like a call yep. button, right? Yeah. So she's in the, in the middle of calling, like, responding to a call and entered the dark room because it's the middle of the night. So the resident, you know, laying in bed, push the button, gets a call. And to her surprise, she found the resident fast asleep. So she's kind of like, what the hell? Yeah, that's a bit weird. So as she searched for the mysterious, like, act, like why the, the button was activated sort of thing. Yeah. Did they roll over on the button or whatever? Uh, so she's standing next to the bed, kind of looking at the, the resident, like maybe searching for the button. And all of a sudden, a hand grabbed her ankle from underneath the bed, prompting her to panic. She screamed oh and gosh. fled the room. I would have shit myself. Yeah. And she woke up quite a few of the, the residents within the manor. Uh-huh. It was Gwen. She was playing a prank. She was oh. hiding underneath the bed and she emerged laughing her ass off hysterically. Oh. I mean, I get that, but I also don't like that's maybe a bit too far. Especially when you're dealing with residents like that and like you just woke uh, them up and disturbed them, right? Yeah, yikes. Yeah. Uh, so from here, Gwen's practical jokes like this only began to escalate, leaving both staff and residents in a perpetual state of like, is she standing around the corner? What's going to happen next? Right. Mm -hmm. um, Gwen, she reveled in playing these tricks on her colleagues. 
she would actually turn beds. Like she'd go into rooms when uh, other nursing aides are, aren't around. She'd turn the beds around. So when they come in the room, it's like, what the heck? Like, where's the resident or anything? Right. Cause they walk around in the dark lots because residents are sleeping. Yeah. And she would actually even swap residents rooms. So she'd be like, take this resident, put you in this room, this one over in this room, like just screw with people. Oh, okay. I don't know if I love this. She even began removing wire screens from windows that backed onto the courtyard, which allowed her swift escape if she needed to, like to get out of there so people don't catch her in the act sort of thing. Seriously? And she's she, going next level. She would even like wait outside these windows and like bang on the windows really hard to like scare people inside. Hmm. So yeah, she was, uh, she was taking a little far. Needless well, to say. yeah, it doesn't really sound like it matches like the description, how you described this place initially, right? Like it seemed like kind of calming and. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah but and she's, this is not. Yeah. And I mean, I understand practical jokes. Don't get me wrong. I really do. But there's like, you got to kind of, like you said, match that sort of energy of totally. your workplace. So, yeah. And understand who you're playing pranks on. And, and it, you got to. You got to do it cautiously and mm -hmm. carefully and ensure there's no harm done to anyone. Yeah. You're playing pranks on this, like with your coworkers, there's, there's collateral damage with these residents. Well, yeah. And I just feel like that, like the dark is scary enough. I mean, I don't know. I don't love dark situations. And then also you're kind of in a, in a place where like people, there's a lot of death and stuff. Yep. Like I just, I think that would make me feel very uneasy to be honest. Yeah. No, I can't blame you. Now the night house supervisor, Tish Prescott found herself caught in the crossfire of Gwen's antics. So she's kind of in charge, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, now this is all happening. It's people are like, what the fuck? Yeah. So she's fed up with the shenanigans and Tish identified Kathy Wood and Gwen as the instigators behind much of the trouble. So these pr pranks were in fact only part of the problem. The duo were actually using the PA system uh, to gossip about other colleagues and it actually even exploited residents with speech impediments, getting them to read announcements for their amusement. So they're like over the PA, like to someone with a speech impediment, read this. And they're laughing at the way they're pronouncing it and everything to the whole building. Okay. This has gone way too far. No, it's starting to get onto abuse now yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Now, despite Tish's attempts to separate Kathy and Gwen, all they would do is they would just switch shifts with other nursing aides to ensure that they're still back on the same scheduled shift with each other so they could continue doing this. I'm feeling like Gwen is a bad influence on Kathy. Potentially. Yeah, because this doesn't really seem like Kathy's MO to me. No? No. Okay. Well, do, you do have to remember some of these tendencies that she was starting to do before right. she even met she Gwen. was changing a bit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, because I'm thinking like the the OG Kathy. The OG Kathy. <laughs> and this is not, this is not like a 2.0 version. This is a negative. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there were also reports that began circulating that apparently um, some nursing aides, I'm assuming... Kathy and Gwen in particular, um, but it's nursing aides, so I'm encompassing all, uh, who were sneaking off for romantic encounters in unoccupied beds of the residency. Tish, with this information, took her concerns about Kathy and Gwen to the director of nursing and emphasized that the two were jeopardizing the well-being of those under their care. In a plea for intervention, she stated, quote, those two are just no good for each other. However, upper management declared that their hands were tied, asserting that whatever staff choose to do on their breaks was beyond their control, leaving the chaotic atmosphere unchecked. 
Well, I mean, they're kind of in a t- in a tough position if they're ha- they already have a shortage, right? They kind of need these two. In that's a way. true. Yeah, they were dealing with quite a shortage as well. So yeah, and I, I don't. I think that's a contrast between back in the eighties to now. It's like yeah during person's break like you could go off and and get drunk at the pub basically and come back and perform your work whereas nowadays it's like yeah no way mm-hmm. it's a lot different from then to now it's quite yeah. stark um one night now on december 19th 86 this marked a particularly distressing turn of events at alpine manor gwen showed up to work intoxicated so severe that she couldn't walk in a straight line well Taking immediate action, nice house, night house supervisor Tish Prescott sent Gwen home and promptly reported the incident to management, expecting that such behavior would warrant termination, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you showed up to work like you can't even stand. It's one, yeah. It's one thing if you just had a beer or two, like you go off in your lunch break and, you know, have some drinks, right? But no, she, she's sloshed. She's hammered. Like there's, yeah, there's no way that she can do her job. No. She can barely walk, let alone do her job. She's yeah. supposed to be caring for people? I don't think so. But however... To everyone's surprise, Gwen was back on shift the very next night at 4.31 a.m. without Mm. any repercussions. Wow. I mean, I feel bad for that, the supervisor too. I would like lose my absolute shit. Oh, they're in a tough spot because they want something done, but they can't do it themselves without the okay from upper management. And the upper management's like, no, seems good to me. Yeah. Wow. I feel for her, for sure. Okay. In that same fateful month though, Nancy Han received a life-altering call in the early hours of the night. The voice on the other end of the phone identified themselves as, as a nurse from Alpine Manor, and they informed Nancy that her mother, who was a resident there, Belle Burkhart, had rapidly been declining and might not make it through the day. Oh, jeez. Now, Nancy lived three hours away from Alpine Manor and was unable to afford the day off. So she managed to do what she needed to do, get through her long shift, and then was hoping and praying that her mother would still be alive when she was driving to the manor after work. That's hard. Upon reaching Alpine Manor, Nancy rushed to her mother's room to find it empty. Her mom wasn't in there. She went to the nursing station and asked where her mom was, Mm -hmm. but none of the nurses had any information on where she was. The staff was kind of bewildered and I mean, so was Nancy Mm -hmm. and Nancy's like, well, I received this phone call that she was like declining what's going on. Her mom, Belle, was eventually discovered sitting in the dining room, alive, normal, completely fine, just with other residents, just doing her thing. Nancy was, of course, relieved, but quite confused. Well, yeah. So she fed her mother dinner and, you know, the whole situation was just like what the fuck mm-hmm. in the back of her mind. So she went and talked to the nurses and the nurse in charge and they checked the records and they revealed that no one logged a call to Nancy. There were no staff notes indicating any concern for Bell's health. And it became very painfully clear that Nancy was a victim of a cruel prank call orchestrated by someone on the night shift at Alpine Manor. Okay. That is just fucked yeah isn't it holy shit prank calling your mom's dying that is not okay like now i'm just like pissed yeah wow i would have i would have just lost my absolute mind yeah I can't like i that. literally would have just like holy shit that is beyond okay but that's exactly what happened wow wow 
So I mean, it's good that the mom's okay, but holy shit, that's just so. Yeah, wrong. you don't you don't do that to a person. You don't make no. a call like that. Well, I mean, she had she couldn't afford to get there, so she had to like stress all day while she was trying to work, and then she obviously you know doesn't have a lot of extra money, and she's spending gas for six hour drive like with there and back. Yep. And then it has to probably go to work the next day, tired as fuck. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yep. I, that's all I can say is yep, because everything you said was right. But yet that whoever this person was who made this call doesn't really seem to care. They just think it's funny. That is an absolute animal. Yeah. So concerns, of course, were coming forward, especially regarding the quality of care at Alpine Manor. An anonymous complaint was lodged with Michigan Health Department in late 1986, and it brought the, the facility under scrutiny. Disturbing reports surfaced depicting residents who were left in soiled incontinence garments for extended periods of time and received very infrequent baths only once a week. Mm. So basically, they're just someone called in saying that like, hey, people are just like soiling themselves. Yeah. No one's changing or cleaning them. It's getting bad. Now, the high turnover rate among staff was part of the problem. With 112 nurse, nurse aides hired and 71 of them leaving by October that same year was identified as this key contributing factor. In response to the public outcry, Alpine Manor underwent an unannounced visit from a health inspector. The facility had undergone noticeable changes from what we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, with the atmosphere described now as eerie by one staff member. Residents were seemingly treated like children, spoke to in childlike voices, and as such, even had their hair styled into pigtails to match it. Oh my gosh. The previous diverse craft room was now featuring only children's coloring books with a handful of crayons, and there was cartoon pictures taped to the walls. Wheelchair-bound residents were left unoccupied, all just pushed together with nothing to engage them. While a local radio station blared over the PA systems in an attempt to drown out the unsettling sounds of residents with dementia. Wow. And this is all because of Gwen and Kathy, hey? Like that many people are leaving because they're just disturbed by, I mean, their actions and the environment that it's creating. Yeah. I do want to say that I believe there was a high turnover rate still before them, but I'm sure they were a contributing factor to the current high yeah. turnover rate. Well, I mean, because all these people, like they're in demand, they can easily go somewhere else and get another job, right? Yeah, definitely. So it's like, if you're not completely happy, why wouldn't you just find another facility to work at? Oh, of at? course, 100%. Mm -hmm. Now, a post-inspection report was issued, and it found that Alpine Manor was adhering to state guidelines and practicing safely. No further follow-up was deemed necessary. How the fuck was that determined? I don't know. You got me. Okay. Now, upper management continued to offer their praise to Kathy and Gwen, labeling, labeling them as extremely hard workers who often took double shifts to compensate for understaffing. I mean, we know they took double shifts, mm -hmm. but I guarantee you it wasn't for understaffing. Mm -hmm. Gwen, in particular, demonstrated her competency by scoring an impressive 97% on a test administered by the state health department, further complicating the issues and claims against her. The State Department examiner in regards with Gwen adorned her competency test papers with words great on every single page and a big old smiley face. Hmm. 
I think wow. I think we've all worked with a Gwen who just pulls the wool over management's eyes. Yeah. Well, it's just so interesting the divide that can happen, right? Between like upper management and then people like supervisors or whatever that are actually within the field. Oh, definitely. It's really um like alarming and quite disheartening, really. Yeah. And I can tell you, I, I've been a supervisor in the field and I've had that disconnection between upper management and it's <laughs> it's disheartening to the point where, hey, I left that job and yeah. I left in a hurry. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Um, so apparently Gwen's creative approach to care, particularly her use of washcloths, drew admiration from the department. See, Gwen was known for carrying washcloths, often seen with one flapping out of her back pocket of her pants at all times. So what she would do is she would roll these washcloths cloths into like a log shape and place them in residents' clenched hands to prevent fingernails from digging into their skin. Okay. Makes sense to me. Totally yeah. good, right? Yeah. Now, Kathy and Gwen foster this tight-knit circle of friends at work, but none of, not everyone, I'll say that, not everyone bought into their camaraderie. Some staff members saw Kathy and Gwen as bullies and liars who wielded power through intimidation. In one disturbing incident that occurred was, sorry, one that did occur was when Kathy falsely accused a disliked fellow aide of neglecting to change soiled garments overnight. The charge nurse, the nurse in charge, right, accompanied, accompanied Kathy to investigate the claim. And they discovered a resident lying in a puddle of urine. When in reality, what happened? Kathy had enlisted Glenn, sorry, Gwen, don't know where I got Glenn from, enlisted Gwen to pour cups of water over the resident's legs to create the appearance of neglect. Gwen, as quoted in later years, acknowledged the fear Kathy instilled in others, stating, quote, Everybody was scared of Kathy. Kathy would mess with you. That was just her thing, and everybody knew it. Hmm. Wow. Wow. I mean, I don't honestly, just the more I hear, I don't blame how many people were leaving there. Oh, definitely not. Wow. And her manipulations were further exposed in a, another encounter with a, a difficult resident. So this was a man who was known to yell all day. Um, and he would quickly silence just at the sight of Kathy. And whenever she entered the room, she would lean in close and she would whisper in his ear. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With that, a look of fear would sweep across, across his face. And when asked by a nursing aide who witnessed this, Kathy told her what she said. And she said, quote, I said, Go ahead, scream one more time, but look at me. I'm bigger than you. I'm huge, in fact. You are helpless. I'm not. You scream one more time, and I will kill you, and there's nothing you can do to stop me. Hmm. Wow. I think I would shut up and be scared shitless, too. Yeah. And I'd be screaming all the time and to try and get out of there. This is like a resident, right? This is a resident. Oh my gosh. This is an elderly resident who is 
there's clearly something going on with his mental health as well because he's screaming all day. Oh, oh wow. Now, the aide who witnessed this didn't know what to do in response, but she was frightened of potential repercussions from Kathy and Gwen because they're known for their bullying and their intimidation. So she chose not to report the incident to to management. I mean, honestly, though, I feel like reporting it may not have even done anything. Probably not. And that's probably part of the reason why she didn't. Yeah. Now, one night, nursing aide LaDonna, working the night shift, encountered 87-year-old Carla Pierce who had been at the facility for six years at this time and was battling dementia. Carla usually was lucid and was now screaming with terror, claiming that someone was going to kill her. Now, previously, the doctor had ordered Clara's wrist to be tied to the bed due to recent incidences of her wandering the halls at night. So, I mean, she was just um, strapped to sleep, Mm -hmm. right? So she didn't get in harm's way sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, LaDonna, however, realized Clara or sorry, release Clara to accompany her to the bathroom and then back to bed. And as she attempted to reapply the restraints, Clara pleaded not to be tied up, insisting someone was coming to kill her. Despite reassurance, LaDonna left Clara alone, strapped to the bed, gripped with fear. Oh, that is, this. okay, this is just so uncomfortable to listen to because yeah. it's just so sad. It's so sad. Well, should I keep going or you want me to just stop here? <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> That's the episode. Oh, no, we have to keep going, but this is just getting worse and worse. And okay. It's a little bit scary. Well, let's backtrack just a little bit to someone a little more familiar. Well, oh, well we're not going to backtrack. It's the same timeline, but we're going to talk about someone we know about. On Christmas Day, 1986, Ed Chambers visited his wife, Marguerite, at Alpine Manor, accompanied by their daughter, Jan. Now, disturbingly, Jan found Marguerite with dried food around her mouth. Now, this indicated neglect since her last meal, right? She had eaten and no one has been helping or caring for her since. Yeah. So when Jan attempted to clean her mother's face, Marguerite reacted very oddly. Unable to speak due to her advanced Alzheimer's, Jan noticed a significant change in her mother. A very haunting expression of absolute terror was now on her face. In the week prior, Marguerite had been primarily cared for by Kathy and Gwen. Marguerite's condition deteriorated physically, and on Sunday, January 18th, 1987, Ed Chambers returned to find his wife unresponsive. Despite efforts to revive her, Marguerite passed away at the age of 60. Wow. Okay. Oh, I didn't want you to bring her back. I want. I just thought they had this like. Well, it wasn't a beautiful life, but I really liked Ed and. It was romantic, sort of like romanticized yeah. situation. And yeah. then, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it it was inevitable that she was probably going to pass away. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like maybe she could have lasted longer if she wasn't neglected. But I don't know yet. Yeah. Now, following protocol, the charge nurse contacted the on-call doctor, who unwillingly or sorry, unwilling to travel through the the heavy snow that was currently on the roads and everything, ordered Marguerite to be transferred to the mortuary over the phone. The doctor signed her death certificate, citing a heart attack without any physical examination of her body. Three weeks later, on February 3rd, a nurse at Alpine Manor noticed blood dripping from the nose of 95-year-old resident Myrtle Luce. Though she applied a compress and made a note that the incident didn't raise any real concerns, right? 
I mean, she's older and Myrtle was a victim of a stroke and organic brain syndrome, which generally meant she spent her days in a fetal position, except when her son visited and triggered momentary awareness and she would get a smile on her face. But the disturbing pattern continued at Alpine Manor, with Kathy openly expressing her hate for Myrtle due to her high care needs, and she found her too challenging to care for. A week after Myrtle received treatment from an unexplained nosebleed, Myrtle was found lifeless in bed. This time, her nose appeared to be bruised and covered in mucus with a rolled-up washcloth laying beside her. (laughs) I don't even know what to say anymore at this point. Holy shit. Because, okay, the rolled-up washcloth is like an indication that like Gwen, I guess, was there. Or Kathy, I guess. Gwen was the one who would do it, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, this is just so disturbing. Where's your head at? I'm curious. I think that these two are murdering assholes is where my head's at. And I'm freaking pissed about it. Okay, okay. Like I have extreme hatred towards them right now. And I hope that I am semi-satisfied at the end of this that they get what is coming to them. Okay. Well, similar to the previous incident with Marguerite, The Alpine Manor doctor, without examination, sent Myrtle's body directly to the mortuary, listing the cause of death as a heart attack. Myrtle's death came as a surprise to her loved ones as she had recently just undergone a physical examination the day prior with a doctor praising her apparently impeccable health, healthy heart. Mm -hmm. And here she is a week later having a heart attack, an alleged heart attack by the doctor who didn't even examine her. Well, I mean, I kind of get the doctor situation because, I mean, a lot of people are dying in there, right? And It's it's a part of but, the atmosphere, yes. But still, it needs to have attention. He still needs to do his you know? fucking job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, days later, Kathy and Gwen invited Kathy's ex-girlfriend, Dawn, to their home. This was the girlfriend in between her ex-husband and Gwen that lasted like two weeks. Oh, okay, okay. So they invited Dawn to their home. Now, during a casual gathering in their living room, Gwen casually mentioned her responsibility for Myrtle's death and asked Dawn if she wanted to see proof. Just casually? Yep. Like casually mention that I'm a fucking asshole? Pretty much. Okay, cool. So in her bedroom, on a shelf, she had a single sock that apparently belonged to Myrtle. Now, initially, Dawn struggled to wrap her head around the the, the claim of this I killed her sort of thing, and and this sock is hers. Uh, she considered the possibility that the pair had stolen the sock from Myrtle or that it actually belonged to Kathy and they were trying to just, like, basically screw around, play a prank or something. I mean, they always mm, did, right? Yeah. So she was just like, okay, maybe this isn't actually what's going on. But the unsettling incidents at Alpine Manor after this only seemed to continue, with the mysterious deaths of residents raising more questions about the facility's care. On the morning of February 16th, 1987, nursing aide Sean attended to 70-year-old May Mason, who had Alzheimer's disease and appeared agitated. Despite Sean's attempt to freshen her up with a damp washcloth, May resisted grabbing and swiping at the cloth. When Sean returned later, May's skin had turned gray and her fingernails were blue. She was pronounced dead at 4 a.m. May's family physician attributed her death to cardiac arrest, marking the second death in a span of six days following Myrtle Luce. 
The following day, 74-year-old Belle Burkhardt around, or sorry, another resident at Alpine Manor was discovered with bruising around her nose and right cheek. Due to her history of seizures, the injury was attributed to a presumed unwitnessed seizure during the night, assuming that she must have smacked her head on the, like, um, the bed frame or something like that. Yeah. Hmm. On February 26th, Kathy Wood volunteered to supervise the nurse's station um, during a break. At 3 a.m., Belle would be found dead in her bed. Examination of her remains revealed an odd angle of Belle's arm beneath her body with noticeable bruising. Kathy's nursing friend suggested that the bruising might be a result of an inadequate turning during the night. The matter was dismissed and Belle's body was sent to the mortuary without a doctor's examination once again. Oh my gosh, are they actually beating these people? Oh, that is just, that makes me just feel so ill, like so ill. We're, I can't say anything mm-hmm. just yet. We'll get there. We'll mm-hmm. get there. Okay. Okay. As the number of sudden deaths at Alpine Manor continued to rise, Kathy and Gwen and their associates spiraled further out of control. On their days off, the couples hosted wild parties at their home with drinking and some drug use where staff and attendants would run up and down the street topless and it just got worse from there. The disorderly group for no apparent reason, frequently got into physical fights at pubs and clubs. Nursing aide LaDonna, during one altercation, had two teeth knocked out. Uh, reflecting on their behavior later in later years, LaDonna remarked, quote, We had all gone crazy. We didn't care for each other's feelings. We didn't have any feelings. Hmm. Wow. In April of 1987, the situation reached a new low when nursing aide Catherine had a black eye and a sling in her arm and apparently cracked ribs. She initially attributed her injuries to an accident, but the truth emerged and Kathy had lured her to a deserted area with a pretext of hooking up. Gwen confronted Catherine and violently knocked her to the ground and began repeatedly punching and kicking her in the chest and stomach. When questioned about the incident later on at work, Gwen smiled and replied, I wouldn't do something like that. Oh, she's disturbing. And she faced no consequences. Hmm. Wow. Reports of Kathy and Gwen's toxic behavior flooded management, yet the manager and friend of Kathy dismissed the bullying reports and decided to separate Kathy from the aides um, who were making the allegations against her in another way. Instead of addressing the issue, she solved this problem by giving Kathy... A promotion. Okay. That's honestly what I thought you were going to say. Wow. She was now in charge of the nursing aides on her shift. Oh my word. Kathy's promotion to Alpine Manor, however, created a riff in the relationship with Gwen, who believed she deserved the promotion more. <laughs> I don't think either of them deserve a fucking <laughs> no. promotion, but whatever. They deserve something, but not a promotion. Uh, their dynamics at home because of this were deteriorating, leading to frequent arguments, fights, uh, which like occasionally escalated further into actual physical violence. Uh, the walls of their home was uh, now rather holy with fist marks going through drywall as they were punching in fits of rage. And it only escalated even more when Kathy learned about Gwen's affair with another nursing aide and screams could be heard at other houses down the street. <laughs> Man, these two are just wild, eh? Yeah. 
and Kathy's fury would ultimately leave Gwen with a visible, with a bunch of visible like uh, scratches and bruises mm. and stuff as she's coming to work and stuff. People could see that there's there's definitely domestic violence occurring mm-hmm. within their home. By 1987, by mid 1987, Gwen decided she had had enough and moved out of Kathy's home. Joining her was Heather Barger, a 21-year-old nursing aide from Alpine Manor, who became Gwen's new girlfriend. Together, the two plotted to leave Grand Rapids and start a new life in Gwen's hometown in Texas. However, Kathy discovered their plans and confronted Gwen, insisting that she come back home with her, forget all this. And after a heated argument between the two, Gwen did exactly that. She agreed, and she went back home with Kathy. Okay. From there, they both went back to Kathy's home, and the two immediately went to the bedroom. Kathy then revealed some restraints she had taken from Alpine Manor, and she began binding Gwen's wrist to the bed, with Gwen now bound, assuming for sexual reasons. Mm-hmm. Kathy then held a loaded gun, a gun that belonged to Gwen. She took the gun, walked to the foot of the bed, and inserted the loaded gun barrel into Gwen and threatened to kill her. Holy shit. To quote, I'll kill you. That's exactly what she said. With the gun now inside of her, the barrel loaded inside of her. Oh my gosh, this woman. Okay. Kathy left Gwen like this, tied up for three hours with the barrel of the loaded gun still inserted. (laughs) She returned three hours later and released her. Following this and a discussion, Kathy and Gwen mutually agreed to end the relationship. Gwen reunited with Heather, who questioned like, hey, why'd you go back to Kathy? And Gwen could only respond with, quote, Kathy has something over me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she seems like she's kind of that type of person, but not that Gwen is an angel either, so. Well, I want to, that's kind of what I thought when I was first researching this, but I really want to break this sentence down. Kathy has something over me. What could something mean? It could mean a lot of things. Our initial response is she has something over me, like she has my heart or like she's, she just has this way about her that really draws me in. But she has something over me. Could mean a lot of things. Well, now I'm- Could mean information. I was just kind of thinking maybe Kathy is the one that's getting Gwen to kill these people. And so she has that. She has that. Exactly. It could mean a lot more than just, oh, she has this way about her that draws me in or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's much more than this superficial level of what you first hear when you read that sentence or get it read to you or whatever. There's more to it, I think, than we could ever know. Mm -hmm. Yep. So Gwen and Heather in August of 1987 packed their belongings into Gwen's car and fled Texas. Left with nowhere else to go, Kathy returned to her ex-husband, Ken. She confessed to Ken about the disturbing acts that she and Gwen had committed while working at Alpine Manor, expressing fear and desire to disclose the truth. She demanded Ken and his assurance of secrecy before divulging the most shocking of all the details. After Ken promised to keep everything confidential, Kathy posed a chilling question to him. Quote, What's the worst thing you could think of to do to someone? Murder is what came to mind when Ken thought of that. He's like, well, we'll murder someone, I guess, and kill them. And Kathy responded by saying, quote, 
Well, try six times. Oh my gosh. She recounted the story of one of the victims, 97-year-old Edith Cook, a beloved resident of Alpine Manor for six years. Edith once described the facility as grand and lovely. She had suffered a rapid decline in health, developing pressure sores and painful gangrene. On the night of April 7th, 1987, Edith Cook was found dead in her bed with Kathy as the assigned night nurse and Gwen working the same wing. Ken tried to understand if Kathy and Gwen had committed these acts to potentially end the suffering of a resident, Mm -hmm. someone who's like their health is so far gone. It's like more of a a humane act to put them out of their misery sort of thing. He's like, is that why? Yeah. To which Kathy just replied, quote, no, we did it for fun. Oh my gosh, for fun. She revealed that the idea initially to murder residents rose from boredom and the pair wondered what it would be like to kill. Their first victim was 60-year-old Marguerite Chambers. On the night of January 18th, 1987, after Marguerite's husband left for the night, Kathy and Gwen approached her room and Kathy kept watching the door. Gwen slipped inside, armed with two washcloths rolled into log shapes. Kathy claimed that Gwen positioned one washcloth under Marguerite's chin and the other over her nose, squeezing tightly. Marguerite struggled to free herself, but Gwen easily overpowered her. Less than 30 minutes later, Marguerite was found lifeless. Wow. This, however, was not their first attempt. They had tried the same method a month earlier. Kathy explained to Ken how they aimed to spell out the word murder in the logbook by targeting residents with specific initials. So when they recorded individuals' names, they wanted to spell that word with the first letter of their name. You're shitting me. That's literally how they picked these people. It proved too challenging. Um, The residents with the desired actual initials were not ideal candidates. They were often like too active or too lucid. So instead they chose victims who were nonverbal or suffering from advanced dementia, making it less likely for them to communicate with their experiences. Hmm. They feared that like, okay, if we, if this person whose name starts with a U, for example, they're in too good a health. If we can't get the job done and they scream and we get found out. Yeah. Right. So, well, I mean, because it was such a big facility, right? I miss then there's other people working there oh, at the time, yeah, right? Definitely. Yeah. You betcha. Huh. So, yeah. Now, to test their victims' reactions, Kathy and Gwen would pinch their nose while in bed. Like, is this a good candidate? We'll just pinch their nose, see how they fight off, like their nose being pinched, right? And if a resident was too resistant, then they would move on to someone else. Residents who were found with Unexplained bruising or bloody noses were the unfortunate subjects of their experiments. Oh my gosh. So when it was time to carry out the murders, Gwen used washcloths as a mean to try and prevent visible bruising. Bruising. According to Kathy, Gwen claimed that killing someone made her feel more relaxed and helped to ease her tension. Both Kathy and Gwen believed that sharing the dark secret of murder would solidify their bond forever. Huh. Which so is fucked up. Like, I'm just, so they're literally like using one wash washcloth on the nose and another one under the chin? Yeah. So it, they're holding their hand over their mouth 
And then they're holding their other hand on the bottom of their chin to prevent their mouth from opening. So they're holding their mouth closed oh. and then preventing oxygen from getting in. And they're using oh. washcloths mm. as cushioning to prevent like them hitting or scratching mm-hmm. or scraping. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They are both so disturbed. That just is wild. Uh, th- there's more. Okay, cool. We'll touch on some more of the information here okay. in a little bit. I cannot imagine. His name's Ken, right? Yeah. I do not know what I would do if someone was confessing that kind of shit to me. Want to know the next sentence I have written for this case? Ken struggled with the decision <laughs> of what to do with the information <laughs> Kathy had confided in him. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I just don't. Like, this was someone that you have a child with that you loved, right? Love or loved. I just, I don't know, that would, the, the emotions that would be going through you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, Ken had no idea what to do. He's just like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Also, like, should I fucking run? Because this chick's yeah. a murderer. Now, he actually kept her confession to himself for over a year and a half while she was still working at Alpine Manor. What? Yeah. I mean, that is tough, though, because, like. He, but she could be killing more I, people. Like, because she's the mother of his kid. But then, but she could be killing. I know. More well, people. that was my question: Is she killing more people during that time? Because then he's an accomplished, almost, in my opinion. Yeah. Did she kill more people? We'll get into that. Oh my gosh, this is too much. Well, eventually, on October 6, nineteen eighty-eight, Ken made a crucial decision. He was driving past a police station, and in that moment, he turned around the vehicle, went inside to report Kathy's alarming revelation. Okay, I'm very shocked that it took that long, but okay, this yeah. is good. Well, and they actually questioned him on like why it took him so long to come forward, and he explained that he didn't want to destroy his life or his wife's life. Um, or his kid's life. Or his kid's life, yeah, you bet. Uh, but he he felt a responsibility to make sure that she wasn't dangerous. Mm. Which, I mean, it's like, hey, a year and a half, she could have done a lot more damage still. Well, she was probably promising to him that she'll never do it again kind of thing, right? Yeah. And she's manipulative. Yeah, she she definitely is. We know that for sure. So. Now, the next day, Kathy was at work when a detective arrived at Alpine Manor. Without expressing surprise whatsoever or asking any questions, she has grabbed her coat and accompanied the detective for questioning. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Just peace. Like, just, just so evil that you know that they're there for you. Yeah. So with the interview with the authorities, Kathy admitted to her involvement in the murders, confirming the death of five victims, Marguerite Chambers, May Mason, Belle Burkhart, Edith Cook, and Myrtle Luce. She suggested that there might have been three more victims killed by Gwen, but Kathy claimed not remembering the details or asserting that she wasn't present at work during those instances. I think she would A, remember, and B, I just, dawned on me, these families are now going to have to find this out. Like, oh, that's yeah. just gut-wrenching. Well, to make it worse, like during, when they're interviewing her, she actually openly described planning these these crimes as, quote, almost exciting in a way. How do you think a family member is going to feel when they hear that? Yeah. Wow. Because all these family members chose to put their loved ones in there made that really hard decision. And then like, that's They're just counting on these nurses. It's just something that you, you, I don't think like, I mean, not that you should, but you would feel guilt 
and you shouldn't. And, oh, I just, okay, this is too much. <laughs> well, she recalled specific details, such as the night when Gwen murdered 79-year-old May Mason. So Gwen had initially informed Kathy of her intention, but Kathy warned her that it wasn't the right time due to the presence of two nurses nearby. And Kathy had actually been assigned to a different wing. So it looks suspicious if she's over in this wing, right? Mm. So to avoid detection, Kathy did go over to that wing, but she went over there with the intent of distracting the nurses with gossip and chatter. So while she was doing that, Gwen slipped into May's bedroom. Another close call actually occurred when Gwen killed Belle Burkhart. Kathy had volunteered to supervise the nurse's station during the break, right? We talked about that. Mm -hmm. And Gwen, equipped with two washcloths in her pocket, entered Belle's room while Kathy kept lookout. Kathy could hear noises over the intercom, including rustling sheets, groaning, gurgling, which ceased after just a few minutes. So other residents would have heard her being murdered. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And she was the one who was found with her arm in a strange position right. underneath her body. Yeah. So Kathy revealed that Gwen explained Belle had resisted fiercely, leading to the bruising on her arm caused by Gwen kneeling on it to restrain her. Oh my gosh. Okay. Like that's pretty like good for her for putting up a fight because this. Oh yeah. It's, it's pretty disgusting when someone is doing this to people that are, you know, like pretty helpless, right? Yeah, it's, well, I mean, that's, there's this general consensus within a lot of prison systems that if you abuse women or children, you will get abused in mm -hmm. prison mm -hmm. because you are, you are, a, you're preying on those weaker than you physically, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And I mean, that's not every case, but it's generally accepted sort of thing in the prison system that that's the case. And so that they look at you as weak and you don't like, you're an asshole, you're a piece of shit. Like you can't fight a fair fight. Mm. And that's what these two are doing. They're mm -hmm. not fighting a fair fight. They're picking on those not only weaker, but they can't even speak out if they fail. Oh, man. Yeah. So when asked about Gwen's motivation for murder, Kathy suggested that Gwen enjoyed pain and painful things, possibly wanting others to feel pain due to the pain in her life as well. Hmm. Kathy claimed that her roles in the murder ended because she grew tired of it and no longer wanted to be a lookout. She never asked Gwen to stop because she wanted Gwen to be happy. While the original plan was for them to take turns as the murderer, Kathy could never bring herself to commit the act. She explained, quote, those people in there were like family to me and I couldn't do that to them. Oh my gosh, all of a sudden you're just deciding right? that you're like a good person for that's, like a brief second. That's the biggest bullshit piece of shit statement I've ever heard in my life. Huh. It's so interesting because at first it seemed like Kathy was like a good person. Yeah. So I don't understand what tainted her so badly. I don't know. Or either. if she really actually wasn't a good person I ever. I really don't. Huh. Now, Kathy had also claimed that Gwen had kept mementos from each of the victims as well. A sock. A sock from Myrtle Luce. Jewelry from Belle Burkhart, an earring from Edith Cook, a key ring trinket from Mae Mason, and a balloon from Marguerite Chambers. Gwen allegedly stored these items in a shoebox in the bathroom. But when she moved out, she supposedly threw the box away. Okay. So those are alleged items. Oh, here I was. And they were never found. Oh, okay. I was thinking that she did actually keep on to the, keep a hold of them. Nope. 
At least they were never found or recovered. Okay. As part of the investigation, police raided Alpine Manor and searched files related to the resident's death. During the search, detectives came across a letter written by Kathy, and the letter expressed Kathy's feelings for Gwen and contained lines like, quote, I love you, Gwen. I think you are great. For this afternoon, I cannot wait. That's when we'll wake up, and that's when I'll kiss you. That's when I'll hold you. Oh, Gwen, I miss you. In the course of the investigation into the Alpine Manor murders, a poem was also discovered by Kathy, um, and it read, quote, Bunny, hop over here and let me lick you on the ear. Oh, please, you'll say you'll be mine forever and five days. When questioned about that last line, um, be mine forever and five days, Kathy explained that it represented their take on Shakespeare's line, forever and a day, except they added an extra day for every time they killed a resident. Wow. How fucked up is that? Also, Kathy's poems are shit. <laughs> like, she's just shit at everything. Like, those poems suck. <laughs> I'm yeah. just, ugh. I'm just so, sitting over here so disturbed and uncomfortable, and I just didn't enjoy those poems at all. I can't say I enjoyed them either. <laughs> I like how her poems suck. Like, you're a piece of shit. Like, <laughs> never write poems again. Oh my gosh. Wow. Definitely not going to like snap the fingers at her poem reading. No. Anytime soon. Never. Uh, well, six days after Kathy's ex-husband first approached the police officers, um, they arrived at Gwen's residence in Texas. Although no concrete evidence of murder had been uncovered yet, Gwen was arrested for writing bad checks three years earlier in the hopes that she might crack while in jail. Okay. However, Gwen protested her innocence and even offered to take a polygraph test. The results, unfortunately, were inconclusive and Gwen was released. Seriously. Okay, I'll keep listening because she better not be released for good. As part of the investigation, Kathy also took a polygraph test. She seemed to play a subtle game during the test, trying to manipulate the results, mm -hmm. leading the examiner to believe that Gwen hadn't actually killed anyone. And Kathy, being the manipulator she is, being the actual killer instead. Yeah, but she still knew stuff and was a part of it, so she's not innocent. Gwen, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. But it, there is a big difference between accomplicing and actually killing there is a big difference but i doesn't mean you're not a piece of shit you are but yeah but i think kathy was at like the nurses stations at times when i thought gwen was murdering so i don't know we'll see yeah but that's all what kathy said yeah very true after six weeks of investigation uh an excavator was brought to the rosedale memorial cemetery to exhume the remains of marguerite chambers and edith cook um at the okay of family members. I know, but still the family having to be asked that is I know, horrible. I know. There, there was, I don't think it kept it in here, but there was a, uh, um, a remark by, by Ed. Oh, not Ed. About how he had to live through Marguerite's death once and now he doesn't want to do it again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Or I feel so bad for Ed. Um, but anyways, Marguerite and Edith were the only two out of the five who had not been cremated. Oh, okay. So medical examiners were checking for washcloth fibers and signs of suffocation, um, such as like stippling or whatever mm. and, and that sort of thing. But due to decay, the results were inconclusive. Oh, dang, eh? 
However, based on circumstantial evidence and the findings during the examination, the cause of death for Marguerite and Edith was changed from heart attack to homicide. On December 4th, 1988, detectives surrounded Gwen Graham's home in Texas and, and with an arrest warrant in hand. They knocked on her front door and went unanswered. They were informed that several days earlier, her and her girlfriend had fled. Mm-hmm. Yep. As they were leaving the house, they went through a stop or an intersection and a stop sign. And lo and behold, who drives through the stopping <laughs> the, the intersection? Gwen drives through the oh intersection. Oh my gosh. And that, they pull her over and arrest her. That is just like the best kind of karma in the whole world. Right? Like, oh my gosh. I am obsessed with that. Yeah. Uh, Kathy Wood was also arrested just a few hours later. In January 1988, the Michigan Health Department conducted its own investigation, finding that Alpine Manor managed to have um, actually acted appropriately and had no reason to suspect elder abuse at the time of the murders. Bullshit. I, I'm on both sides of the fence in this one. I don't know if there was specifically signs of elder abuse. Per se, there may be some with bruising, but I don't think it was frequent enough to consider abuse because there was other potential attributing factors. Could they have investigated better? Better, Yes, by far. Could they have done things with their employees better? You fucking bet, because they were not doing good. But I'm not certain of abuse specifically. Bad treatment? Yes, but I don't know. I'd have to really get into it to really research and really figure out where the line is for abuse. So you don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily consider neglect abuse. No, 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 no. Okay. Really? Well, that no, sorry. That's not what I mean. I'm not saying no, I don't consider neglect abuse. Yes, I consider neglect abuse. But there is a, when is neglect abuse? Yeah. And I don't know if the management would have been aware of the neglect at the extent it was. Right. So I don't think they would have been aware to contribute that neglect to be abuse. Because it's like, oh, we pushed him in a circle. And like the, the ones in a wheelchair. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, you pushed him in a circle for an hour yesterday. As long as you don't do that again. And they the employees promised, yeah, I won't do it again. But then they just keep doing it behind their backs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, those, I feel like those management, the upper management are very guilty. Oh, they, they're guilty, but I don't think that they had um, any reason to suspect elder abuse. They were not running the show properly by far. Yeah. But I, okay. I think they were so out of the loop, they had no reason to suspect elder abuse. That's right. what I mean. And the problem is that they were out of the loop and they should yes. not have been. I think they were neglect on their own employees and their own um, staff, their own mm. facility. Yeah. Which in turn results in neglect of elder abuse. Right. I right. think they just had the wool pulled over their eyes that much mm -hmm. is what I think. Well, I mean, at one point in time, the place did run really well and was great. Exactly. And so then, I mean, eventually you would just probably be like, oh, yeah, that place is fine. Like yep. turn a blind eye. And if they had reason to, to investigate a death maybe, but we had death certificates signed mm -hmm. by doctors saying, hey – Heart attack. Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah, because these people were just too busy and just yeah. kind of assumed. Yeah. I'm not saying management did right. Management fucking sucked. Okay. Yeah. I just don't know if I would say, if I, I think I might agree that they had no reason to suspect elder abuse. Yeah. I could be wrong. I would have to really go into it to really, really say. 
Um, but anyways, that aside, prosecutors did face a challenge in building the case against Gwen. There was only enough evidence to charge her with the murder of Marguerite Chambers and Edith Cook, the two women whose bodies were exhumed. The case, though, heavily relied on Kathy's testimony, and without her cooperation, it risked falling completely apart. So in an effort to secure Kathy's cooperation, the prosecution offered her a plea deal. If Kathy pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and one account of conspiracy to commit murder, she would receive a more lenient jail sentence and possibly even potential parole. Hmm. Okay. So Kathy accepted the deal. Well, of course she did. Of course she did, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this led to additional charges against Gwen, who was now charged with conspiracy to commit murder and the first-degree murder of five residents of the Alpine Manor. Gwen's defense team was confident that she would be acquitted. There was no washcloth fibers or fingerprints linking, linking her to the victims. Um, there was basically just, like, the case was just too weak. Mm -hmm. Despite the absence of physical evidence, like mementos, for example, that she might have kept. Right. And the defense's argument that Kathy had fabricated the story out of revenge, the trial proceeded. In September 19th, sorry, September 1989, the trial began and the assistant prosecutor warned the jury that this is a bizarre case committed by bizarre people. Kathy told the courtroom about how she stood lookout while Gwen suffocated the victims of Alpine Manor. She described herself as a victim of abuse by Gwen, stating that she had been tied to the bed with a gun inserted her into her vagina. When in reality, Seriously? it was the other way around. Oh my gosh. The prosecution's final witness was Gwen's ex-girlfriend, Heather, who confirmed that the two weren't together anymore, but were at the time when police were looking to arrest her. Heather recounted that Gwen admitted to her that she did in fact commit murders the day the police came to question her. Okay. It didn't take the jury long to come to a con consensus. After only six hours of deliberation, Gwen Graham was found guilty of first-degree murder for five victims and conspiracy to commit murder. As a result, she was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. The families of the victims gathered, and they were all relieved by the verdict. Their loved ones could finally rest in peace. Ed Chambers, husband of Marguerite Chambers, expressed his desire for the death penalty. And his daughter, Jan, stated this, quote, My mother can finally rest in peace. The scars will always be there, but it helps knowing the truth. In October 1989, Kathy Wood received her sentence, 20 to 40 years in prison, with the possibility of parole after 16 years, with good behavior. Many, however, believed Kathy's involvement went far beyond a mere lookout. Former nursing staff member described her as manipulative, as a manipulative liar who deceived everyone involved in the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hairdresser named Maureen Hav Haverhill received a disturbing, or sorry, recalled a disturbing encounter with Lucille Vanderveen, an Alpine Manor resident in late 1987. So you remember how you asked the question, did anyone else, was anyone else killed while she can, while Kathy confessed to her husband in that year and a half time period, right? Right. So Lucille claimed someone had tried to smother her in her bed, but Maureen dismissed this at the time. But later she realized the connection to the Alpine man, 
Manor murders and the fact that her client Lucille might have been telling the truth. Now, the problem with this, however, it couldn't have been Gwen because she wasn't employed at the time. She had left five weeks prior. Hmm. I know the fact that Kathy is getting less time than Gwen is kind of disturbing, actually. Now, a former inmate claimed that Kathy Wood bragged about the murders in prison, showing clippings from newspapers and admitting, quote, I did the murders. I really got that bitch back. That's what Gwen gets for breaking up with me. Wow. Right? They should have um, planted someone in her, like, stall or something. No kidding. I feel like she would be one of those people that would just, like, divulge all the information oh, in yeah. a bragging way. You betcha. I, I have a feeling she would have, too. Mm-hmm. Now, in September 2018, Kathy Wood applied for parole. Oh, no. Facing opposition for family members of victims who believe she showcased no remorse and concerns about her potential release were heightened by fears that she might seek revenge on those who testified against her in court as Mm -hmm. well. Despite appeals from the victim's families and significant public outcry, Kathy Wood, now 57 years old, was considered no longer a threat to society. No. After serving 30 years in prison, she was released and relocated to South Carolina to live with her sister. No. She's out. You're kidding me. She's out. Oh, gosh. That's so disgusting. A retired detective who worked the case expressed his disagreement with Kathy's parole, stating, quote, I believe that Kathy Wood was the mastermind. She was the one pulling the strings on Gwen. For safety reasons, I wouldn't want my grandchildren or elderly residents around her. She's a serial killer and she could do it again. And most of them do. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's what literally is going through my head right now. Is she, can, has she killed more people? Well, has she killed more people? Let's touch on that one more time. Are you serious, Ben? With her parole came the release of court documents that were previously withheld from public's view. With these documents, it was revealed that Kathy and Gwen were under investigation for a total of 12 deaths at Alpine Manor. However, a lack of evidence prevented these cases from proceeding to trial. Hmm. Okay. Wow. I want to touch one last thing on this. I did think, though, that you were going to tell me she had done more since, since she's no, been out. No. That we know of, though. I know that we know As of. far as I'm aware, she's just under the radar. Hmm. Just living life in one way or another. Yeah. But the one of the more disturbing things I want to talk about this case that, that I find disturbing is the reactions of many citizens in the public in regards to the murders at the time. For example... Before Kathy was sentenced, her ex-husband Ken wrote a letter to the judge expressing this, quote, Kathy is guilty of taking lives, or at least not preventing Gwen from taking them. But how much life did she really take? All the victims weren't even living. They enjoyed nothing, experienced nothing, and were going to die. Whoa. This sentiment was shared by the majority of the public at the time of the murders. Seriously? Yeah. Really? Yep. The main point of view for Kathy and Gwen back then was that they didn't deserve harsh sentences for their actions because they targeted weak and sick who are going to die anyways. I don't give a shit. Yeah, that's really disturbing. You don't have a right to take a fucking life. No. 
Because, I mean, they still, a lot of them did still experience joy to some degree when they saw their family or whatever. And then it's also affecting more than just them because it's like the families. Yeah. Well, look at it this way. That just doesn't make any sense. Those moments when Ed came to visit Marguerite and she seemed to go back to herself, even for a moment. Mm -hmm. You can't tell me that's not living. No, that's, oh gosh. They took that away from not only Marguerite, but also from Ed and his daughter, Jan. Yeah. And every other family member of every one of their victims. Yeah, because they affected so many more people than just the victims. Yeah. Holy heck. What a disturbing freaking case. I know. So that is the Alpine Manor uh, murders. Huh. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I I remember right when we started, I did a a nurse one it was in canada i can't remember the lady's name but it's just she was the one who was injecting people yeah like i think with like diabetic medicine or insulin it was insulin in some sort of insulin yeah so it's just something about like people who have this sort of authority and like have literally said they're gonna like help people it just makes it kind of worse yeah it does i just realized our our a cam is is out uh-oh. It would have lasted for a long time, though. And this camera's about to die. So we should end this we up. We should wrap this up. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for listening and watching. If you're watching over on YouTube, um, we appreciate you being here. If you want to check out the links down below, they're all down below. Patreon, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all of it is there. Um, the, we have two YouTube channels, one where you can actually watch the podcast and one where you can look at our tiny home life. Mm-hmm. Just kind of vlogs, chilling, doing our thing. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So thank you for being here. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. And until next time, Stay wicked. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.